Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. This episode for me was a really nice change of pace from talking with birders who are extraordinary at finding and listing huge numbers of birds to talking with a birder who's an avid birder who seems to have a great balance of birding, travel, photography, trekking, which I knew nothing about, philanthropy, and and uh, really interest in the people he meets. Uh, we talk about the high elevation villages in Nepal and his work there and philanthropic work there. When I first met David Swain on my recent expedition cruise to Antarctica, I was impressed that he and his wife just seemed to enjoy every aspect of their lives. They were really nice to talk with, and it was clear that David has extraordinary life experiences. He's been on a number of treks to Nepal, where he's walked great distances at extraordinary elevations, and he's become a strong advocate for the village people at some of the highest elevation villages on Earth. On the podcast, he mentions a book, Yak Girl, by Dorhe Dolma, a girl, who, a, a girl, a young woman, actually, who writes her autobiography in this book. I'm enjoying the first few chapters as I record this introduction to the episode, and I think it gives a realistic picture of life as a girl in the high elevation village of the Dolpo region of Nepal. David has a charitable foundation called the Altitude Project that I've put a link to in the podcast notes and on the blog post I write about this episode on birdbanner.com. I encourage you to check out the website to see more about the project and the people there. Well, with that said, I expect you'll enjoy hearing from David Swain on this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast. David, thanks for doing this with me today. Well, it's good to be with you, Ed. Yeah. For listeners who don't know, David lives in BC and uh, we met on a boat on our boat, my boat trip to Antarctica. And uh, I had a chance to talk with David quite a bit because he was part of Alvaro's group. Alvaro Jaramillo is a birding tour operator who recruited some of the participants for the group. And so we spent some time together and I learned, you know, a little, just a little bit about your trekking and your experiences in Nepal. Uh, so that was like, holy mackerel, you know, I, I'm going to Antarctica. That's a crazy thing to do, but that that doesn't seem half with half as crazy as uh, uh, going on a trek in Nepal. Tell, tell me about that and sort of how you came to, to this whole altitude project thing and, you know, just kind of lay it all out for me sure well first of all it was uh, it was great to meet you on the trip to antarctica that trip was a trip of a lifetime for my wife and myself and it's a pretty wild and remote place you know having said that uh, trekking through the himalayas in nepal it's also a, a very remote kind of experience although the main difference i suppose is that um, people live in the himalayas at high altitude so in addition to experiencing a wild place, you also get a cultural experience as part of part of trekking, and and for me, that's uh, that's a really big part of why I enjoy it so much is seeing people living in these remote villages, um, not accessible by road, uh, walking for days and days and days to really get anywhere, and you know, eking out a, a living in these high mountain uh, areas. So. Yeah. So, the, so what is it like to be on a track? I, I, you know, trekking is something I kind of heard of, but know nothing about. Okay. So, yeah. So for, for my whole life, I've been interested in the out of doors and, you know, being raised in British Columbia, I've had plenty of opportunity to do hiking. And, you know, for a period of time, I was even uh, involved with climbing. Although to be fair, I was basically dragged up mountains and uh, by a couple of friends who were serious mountaineers and 
uh, were kind enough to drag me along with them. But I got to experience a lot of the wilderness in British Columbia. So, you know, it wasn't a huge leap for me to think about going trekking in, in the Himalayas in, in Nepal. A good friend of mine that I, when I moved to Nelson, British Columbia, which is where I live, it's just due north of uh, Spokane for people that don't know where it is. We're about 50 miles across the U.S. border. It's in the interior wet belt. It's a really productive forest region in the Selkirk Mountains. Anyways, a good friend of mine here that I, I got to know, he, we did a lot of mountain trips here in British Columbia. He's been going to Nepal probably since the late 80s, early 90s. And we kind of got separated for a number of years. I got very busy with my work and business and uh, we reconnected after about 20 years. Uh, I had an interest in photography. He's a professional photographer. I wanted to get some information on how to update my equipment and software and so on. And he, he sort of blurted out, well, why don't you come to Nepal? <laughs> and I, I, I said, what? You know, I hadn't really considered it. But uh, after a couple of meetings with him and seeing some of his photos, I, I decided I'd go. <clears throat> my first trek to Nepal was in 2011. And I've basically been going every every year since. And during that time, we've covered really a good swath of the country from the far east, um, Kanchenjunga, the third highest peak in the world, which borders on uh, India and China in the northeast corner, um, all the way over to the far west, the upper Dolpo, which is where um, the Altitude Project, the charity project with the schools is, is located. You know, I've been to base camps of Manaslu and Dalagiri and, you know, many of the major mountains. We've, of course, never climbed them. But getting to the base camps of these of these mountains is no um, easy uh, prospect either. It's, you know, most of the treks are probably in the range of 20 to 30 days. Wow. Um some treks can be done on what's called a tea house basis, where you would stay in some modest lodging, you know, a bed and some basic food. Um, or there's the camping style treks. And most of the places we've traveled are camping style because the, the facilities just aren't present in the places we go. My friend Dave, who uh, organizes the trips, he prefers areas where there's not quite so many um, tourists. So for example, if you were to go to the Everest base camp trekking route, you might see 500 to 1,000 people a day. Wow. Um, where, you know, in the upper Dolpo, the first time we went there in 2015 in a 25-day trek, we saw 12 people. Wow. Okay. So much less uh, uh, heavily traveled route. <laughs> not well traveled. Yeah. So, you know, just as an example, to get to um, the first village in the Upper Dolpo, um, landed a little airstrip. At that time, it wasn't paved. It is now. It's a seven-day walk to the first village. And to get in over two passes that are over 5,000 meters, which is over 17,000 feet, so higher than Mount Rainier by quite a margin. Yeah. Uh, for people who are familiar with that in your area. So yeah, two high passes, and then the villages themselves are situated between 3,500 and 4,000 meters. So very high elevation. 
Now, the latitude is further south. It's like 27 degrees, mm -hmm. so closer to the latitude of Hawaii, for example. But mm -hmm. um, still, it's a, it's a very, it's a well above tree line. There's no trees. It's high desert, low shrubs and, and uh, forbs and so on that uh, grow there. So the people that live there essentially um, migrated at one time from Tibet. So it's really the Tibetan border from the villages is about a one day walk, two days walk. Okay. So there, it's really a Tibetan culture and it's probably one of the purest last enclaves of Tibetan Buddhism that, you know, I mean, in Tibet, it's been touched a lot by China and reshaped and, mm -hmm. but in Nepal, it hasn't been touched. In fact, the Dolpo is, it's the largest district in the country, but it's the least populated. So there's maybe, <clears throat> maybe six or 7,000 people that live there in um, 30 scattered villages. Wow. So, Okay, so a bunch of remote small villages uh, and without a lot of infrastructure, I'm assuming. Yeah, no infrastructure. So they, they have electricity or? No. Okay, so uh, back probably back, back, back not back running back. water and, and flush toilets and things like that. No, no, no. Things are slowly changing, but <clears throat> when we first went there in 2015, you know, there were some black poly pipes coming out of creeks that sort of drained down into the village, but nothing what you would call an infrastructure. Okay. A lot of water carrying, you know, from the river to the houses every day. Mm -hmm. Toilets were, well, in, in most cases, there was a, an outhouse type toilet, but in some places not just open defecation, which wow. is not pleasant. <laughs> I guess with I guess without a lot of people coming and going, you know, there aren't that many diseases that are going to get spread mm -hmm. too much. But well, that's yeah. So you know, we're <clears throat> jumping ahead a little bit, but yeah, disease. When we first got there, one of the biggest issues in the schools was children getting sick with uh, diarrhea. Sure. From contaminated drinking water, enteric enteric disease, yeah. So one of the first things we did really was put on a. Coincidentally, I'm I'm good friends with a, a couple in in the Nelson region here that have a large charity, worldwide charity that that specializes in water sanitation, uh, toilets, uh, mm hygiene. -hmm. Actually, yeah, really quite a large charity. They've helped 15 million people in 180 countries. So, yeah, I'd say large they put me in touch with their representative in Nepal. Um, and we put on a training program for the school coordinators mm -hmm. in villages that we worked in and provided them with some very basic um, filter type water filters, you know. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's made a huge difference. Oh, I'm sure it has. Clean water is, you know, clean water and basic, uh, you know, sanitation for elimination of your bodily waste is is uh you know has saved a lot more lives than modern medicine when it comes to a, a place that's for sure yeah and interestingly the the people that i was talking with said you know if you don't have a filter even a piece of cloth folded six or seven times over a bucket will get rid of 98 percent so that was just good to understand as well hepatitis b is a big problem there 
Vaccines are far and few between. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You know, childbirth has been a huge problem as well. Um, it's getting better. Uh, every year it's getting better. But, you know, not uncommon when we arrived in 2015, 25% of mothers dialed in, died in childbirth. And probably 50% of children didn't make it to their fifth birthday. Yeah, that's... Uh... Big numbers. Uh, yeah, big numbers. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. So impressive. Just uh, just on that for, for yeah, people. Yeah, please. There's a, a good friend of mine, Dorje Dolma. She's from that village where we have a school, Karang Village in the Upper Dolpo. She's, she now lives in Colorado. Um, she had to be, she basically had a, a life-threatening scoliosis. It was crushing mm. lungs in her heart. Mm-hmm. Parents took her to Kathmandu, a month-long walk to get there, and through a series of circumstances, an American couple adopted her. Wow. Did four surgeries, life-saving surgeries. She's written a book called Yak Girl. Y-A-K? Y-A-K, like the animal, yeah. And I'll have to check into that. Very cool. It's about her young life, age five to ten, really. Mm-hmm. Had, had to be an adult and look after the uh, family's animals, which take them up on the mountain grazing and fend off snow leopards and wolves. And yeah, it's a <laughs> fascinating book. So wow. I would encourage readers, if they're interested in, in Nepal or, or this particular region, to pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. So the medical is a big part, of course, but education, um, 20. I guess the first school was built in 25 years ago. Um, the schools that we work with, which is, there's five of them that we work with now, mm-hmm. built anywhere from 2003 onward. So it has not, like prior to that, nobody there could read or write unless you were trained in a monastery. And the, uh, the standard practice was for the second son be sent to the monastery the first son would inherit the farm the mm-hmm. land right and the second son would go to the monastery and become a monk for the good of the whole family basically sure so they they learned to read and write but beyond that no people could not read or write so and we when you asked about electricity that's kind of interesting because that's how the project got started um, we arrived in this village of Saldong which is the first village in the Dolpo that we came to and I needed to charge a camera battery and the only place in the village that had power was the school there's a an American guy actually Peter Worth he has a, a foundation called Himalaya Currents mm-hmm. and he's been running around in that part of the world for about 15 years or more installing hybrid wind solar systems at schools and monasteries so they had power up there and I went up and sort of, you know, asked if I could charge my battery and give a small donation. And of course they were agreeable and offered me some tea. And uh, I met with one of the teachers and his and her husband, uh, who was the school coordinator. That school was being sponsored by a German group. They founded the school in 1999. Mm-hmm. The Germans had been through just a month before and told them that they were shy on cash. They weren't going to have enough money to fund fully fund the school next year. 
so they just kind of asked me, said, you know, can can you help? <laughs> and I didn't really know what to say. I, I didn't, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I'm just walking on through. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, and basically that's what I did. I did, we exchanged email addresses. They come to the Kathmandu in the winter. And I just carried on with my trek and I didn't give it a second thought. And they contacted me again at New Year's, wished me good health and prosperity and asked again if I could help. And at that point, after trekking in Nepal for several years and, and really having it be a life-changing experience in many ways, um, I gained more from them than I could probably ever give back in my own view. I said, sure, I'll give it a try. So I wrote a short letter to everybody on my mailing list. And in that first year, I raised $13,500 in a month. And I was tickled, you know, and was able to sort of get them through that year. But like everything, you you learn, okay, well, the village next to it, they've lost their sponsor. And the one over across the next mountain range, they've lost their sponsor. And all of a sudden we're, we're sponsoring five schools or co-sponsoring five schools. And it's become quite a project. Um, we also now have a hostel in Kathmandu for kids that want to go beyond elementary school, mm-hmm. want to pursue secondary or um, university level education. They come and live in Kathmandu and live at the hostel. And we've got a building and a manager and they attend school there. They don't get to go home probably for five years. Wow. It's, Big commitment. It's too, it's too far to go. Yeah. So we've got that going on. Plus we provide some minor infrastructure support with materials to help them build greenhouses off their homes to improve food security and diversify the diets and some portable solar lighting that they can carry around at night. And one project that we're particularly proud of is uh, these very basic um, hygiene kits for women for uh, menstrual hygiene kits, washable, mm-hmm. reusable. Sure. They're $10. They're made in Nepal. And we've delivered, I don't know, over 500 of those up there now. So, and they're, they're hugely, it's life-changing for women and girls. Extremely it's, popular, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of our project in a nutshell, I guess. But Well, uh, very cool, David. You have really uh, taken that uh, challenge and run with it. Congratulations on what you've done and best wishes right. going forward. Uh, I'm going to kind of shift a little bit. We met on a birding trip. Um, we did. The, the, uh, the boat to Antarctica was a birding trip, so I knew that, you know, must be a birder, <laughs> the birding trip. Uh, <laughs> and you told me that you've uh, traveled with Alvaro a number of times, or at least a couple of... No, no actually... We oh, had, I missed that. We had traveled with um, Margaret and Claire, who had traveled oh, okay. Alvaro That's right. a number of times. So that recommend first time. That was our first time meeting Alvaro, and okay, yeah, it's great experience. Pretty impressive, isn't he? He's really he, and, he and Ricardo both. Oh yeah. yeah, they were great. Anyway, uh, you told me that you have uh, birded in Nepal. You took a, a guided tour in Nepal, and so I want to hear about that. And I also want to hear about you know what do you see for in terms of birds and nature in general when you're on these tracks. Yeah, so at, at the higher elevations, you know, the bird diversity isn't huge, but, you know, um, lots of raptors, griffins, Himalayan griffins, a bird called a lama guy, which you may have heard of. It's mm-hmm. uh, sort of renowned in the Bone sky. Bone crunching. Yeah. Bone crunching bird, yeah. 
and some smaller birds, rose finches of different types, um, dippers, a couple of type, types of dippers, um, accentors, a group of birds, high altitude birds. In 2013, I went and did two treks back to back. And then my wife came and joined me. And we did a two-week guided trip, mostly in the lowland country. A lot of people may not understand that Nepal is um, the southern border borders India, and it's mm -hmm. a 200 meters above sea level. So that whole lowland stretch of the country is the big agricultural area, and it's called the Terai. And there's a couple of very large um, national parks there. Chitwan is the most famous. People may have heard of that. Further to the west, there's a much larger park called Bardia, and we spent quite a bit of time in there with our guide, who had actually worked there for that park for a number of years. So he's very well, well versed in it, and uh, we really enjoyed it. We had a great time. Um, people may not realize, but there's about 950 species in Nepal. And it, you know, it's hard to put perspective by i looked at a map before we talked and nepal sort of tucked in between india to the south and china to the north really and it's yeah. kind of a uh east to west long skinny country it looks like uh it and so and it's not a big country in terms of you know geography it looks like so that's impressive well and i think i think the uh the difference in altitude across the country from south to north you've got the terai and then you have the hill what they call the hill country where they grow some citrus and so on. And then you start getting into the into the Himalayas proper. Mm -hmm. So it's a real range in elevation all the way from 200 meters to Everest, which is 8,800 meters, you know. Um, a lot of, lot of different habitat types, a lot of different ecosystems, and therefore a lot of different birds. A lot of, be a lot of beautiful birds. Um, sunbirds, I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, the sunbirds, sure. They kind of replace the hummingbirds in the old world. Yep. Yeah, so I don't know what our count was there. I think in two weeks we we probably had something like 350 species. Yeah. So productive trip, and probably a lot of species that you'd have trouble finding in a lot of other places. Yeah, I don't know. I think you'd find a lot of the same species in you know northern India um, is a pretty popular place. Bhutan's okay. another place for birding. Nepal is probably not well known for birding. But it likely should be. I hear I I've only heard of it as a place to go see raptors. Uh, you know, I, I know that there's rap, a lot of raptors. There's a company called Raptors, and I, I actually talked to the guy who is one of the main guides for them. Not on the podcast, but I talked to him, and that they they run raptor trips uh, in that general area. I could I could see that. I think our list of raptors was pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> And certainly the, the bird book, the birds of Nepal has a long list of, of raptors in it. So, but lots of other species, lots and lots of other species, beautiful birds. Um, yeah. Anyways, we, so we tell me your birding we, story. How did, how did you get interested in birding and, and what sort of birding do you do? Well, I mean, at home, we just, we go out for day trips locally. We have uh, an important bird area near us, the Creston Valley wildlife management area. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Kootenai River, which flows into the Columbia River, actually. And in the Creston Valley, about a third of it is a wetland, and it's a managed wetland. So we go there pretty often. It's about an hour from our house. Um, it's been over 300 species recorded there. 
So we enjoy going there at different times of the year and um, it's a part of the flyway. Mm-hmm. So the, the duck species coming through, it's impressive in both spring and fall. How I got it started in birding, I, I've always been around birds, I guess, in kind of a funny way. My father was a hunter. So even as a young boy, I remember seeing these beautifully colored birds in our kitchen sink. <laughs> mallards and ring-necked pheasants and things and uh, my father also painted models of birds I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. seen they were popular in the 60s I think and I've heard of them he he would paint all these you know goldfinch and bluebirds and and put them up around the house so I just sort of became fascinated really by all these color variations on these different types of birds and as I got older and, and moved out on my own, I, I just uh, got a pair of binoculars and started going to the little park that was nearby where I lived. It was a wetland as well, productive area near Vancouver. And it just grew. I, I just grew into it. Um, I was very fortunate to meet a friend in those early years, too, who was uh, about 10 years older. He grew up on the coast of British Columbia, and he knew the water birds real well and introduced me to that whole spectrum which I wasn't very familiar with and from there it's just yeah it's just grown over time I love it and I particularly love photographing birds that's a really big part of what I enjoy about it so cool cool so what were some of your favorite uh parts of the Antarctic cruise what what uh you know what what, yeah I mean it was pretty crazy spectacular well I mean yeah certainly the pelagic birds that the albatross were pretty amazing to watch and just watch the way they fly um, and how many there were petrels and, and albatross to be real honest though I, a big part of what I enjoyed even though it was a birding trip was mm-hmm. I enjoyed the ice formations um, I, it was I, wonderful I was just I couldn't take enough photos of the icebergs and landscapes and so on and sunsets and i just i was captivated by the uh, the landscape itself you know and the color of the water was yeah just spectacular the, the, the green color of the water of course the penguin colonies how can you not be impressed you know three hundred thousand birds in one location and it's pretty impressive didn't even smell that bad honestly i was expecting <laughs> something a lot worse you know i've heard that later in the year it's a lot worse i think uh we were one of we were one of the early expeditions mm-hmm. to go through and the penguins hadn't been on their colonies all that long i think so i suspect it gets a little riper as the year goes by but you're right it was wonderful yeah and and the zodiac cruising was just fabulous i like you know just getting out along the shorelines and and uh, seeing what was going on there david i wanted to just uh, the other thing that uh, I learned about from you, not that I learned a whole lot about it, but you work for a tree nursery company. I'm sure it's that's not exactly what you'd call it, but you grow uh, uh, baby trees to, we to do. sell we to do. Uh, timber companies, it sounds like. What do you do for them and how did you get involved with that? Well, I've, yeah, it's, it's almost embarrassing. I've been doing it for 48 years. So I started when I was very young, 19 or 20. I started really at the very bottom of the industry. I just walked in off the street and uh, started doing laboring in the nursery. And of course, over time, I've upgraded my education and 
asked a million questions along the way from anybody who would talk to me and read every scientific paper known to man. And so now I'm uh, the director of crop production for the company, um, basically teach the growers in our company our processes. It's all container growing. We don't, we don't have any field grown crops. Um, we have 19 nurseries across North America. We have four in the U.S., one in Alabama, one in Michigan, and two in Oregon, and the rest are in across Canada. This year, we're growing 320 million trees. Wow. How long does it take to, you plant them from seeds, I'm assuming? We plant from, mostly from seed, that's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. so how long does it take from a seed to a tree big enough to sell to someone? Uh, generally a year. Oh, wow, quick. Okay. But, but uh you know, our, our longest rotation is probably 32 weeks. Our shortest is about 16. We have some fast-growing species like uh, pines and western larch that are we can produce them in 16 to 18 weeks. Wow. Yeah. So never no, would a, I thought it would be years. I never, never dreamt no, that no. it would be that quick. Huh. Yeah. So it, it's been a really interesting career. I've, I've had a number of different jobs uh, throughout my career. I've been a nursery manager. I was a regional manager looking after eight of our business units. And later in my career, I, I didn't want to work quite as much. So we agreed that I could work half time and just continue on my portfolio as a director of crop production, which I had as a regional manager as well. But at halftime, I actually spend more time on it than I did as a regional manager. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, well, you're, it's, you're focused on one one aspect instead of yeah, a whole so no, it's, been a, it's been a good career. Um, and we do grow for forest companies and government agencies and some Christmas tree growers, um, some private land people. Um, yeah, cool. it's good. It's good so, so, David, what do, what's coming up in terms of uh, travel for you? Well, I don't have anything um, planned for this year. Um are you going back to Nepal? It's unde undetermined at this point. I had a, I think I mentioned I had a, yeah, I, I did get year. really I, sick. I had dengue fever and had to be evacuated this year. So I'm kind of uh, thinking about that. I need a little to gun shy. Yeah. I need to get back at some point and I will. I don't know if it'll be this year or next year. I will, we'll do some kind of a birding trip. We've, we've birded in a number of different places around the world, South Africa. Vietnam, uh, southern India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, um, yeah, and it, a lot in the U.S. Actually, we've we've done some of the sort of hot spots like southeastern Arizona and mm -hmm. Padre Island and those types of places at the right times of year. Um, yeah, Costa Rica. Oh, and I, how could I forget Colombia, which we've been to three times. Oh wow! Yeah, it's my favorite place in the world for birding if you're being i i my son is a digital nomad he just travels everywhere and uh i when he's in a place i really want to go to i often visit him so i visit he was in medellin for a few weeks so i visited him in medellin and and i just was there for like seven days and i got out three mm -hmm. or four days to, with a guide to do some birding so i've just dabbled in colombia but yeah. oh my goodness what a fabulous place yeah we've had three three-week trips there and we've had the same guide each time it's oh who did you use bird. do you remember the name of the company is yeah. columbia bird watch is the name of the company and chris galoni is the owner he's okay. a he's a dual citizen his mother's american his father's colombian 
Okay. Well, I'll make sure I put a link to that, uh, that company in the podcast notes and in the blog post I write. So good. Yeah. So yeah, Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, those parts of the world. So you are a, a worldwide birder. Good for you. Good for you. We, really we cool. love it. Um, we, you know, if we don't see all the target birds, we don't lose sleep over it. We, we like to see the target birds, but we don't obsess, you know. You seem like a pretty balanced guy, David. I wish I was as balanced as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what are you going to do? You can't, you know, I think in Sri Lanka, there's 33 endemics and we had seven days and we saw 29. So. Oh, poor baby. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with that. You know, I'm not <laughs> yeah. losing any sleep over it. So. Very cool. And the, the other thing I like about birding is you tend to meet uh, a lot of really nice people wherever you go. Yeah. Most, most of our recent birding trips, though, have not been in groups. It's just been my wife and I mm -hmm. hiring a guide directly. That is a great way to do it. I, I've only been on just a very few group trips uh, mm -hmm. and a, a few times I've hired guides by myself. And they're both great, but I kind of, in terms of just the, they're just different experiences. It's not as social. You don't meet as many people uh, other and other birders when you're on a with just a guide, but it is pretty nice to have that. Gosh, I can we have lunch soon? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, sort of thing. and for photography in particular, you know, you don't necessarily, you're not on a, a schedule. If, mm -hmm. if I want to stick around and try and photograph a particular bird, there's no reason that I can't, you know, exactly. It's your yeah. trip. In, in <laughs> Vietnam, we actually, it was quite an extensive trip. It was a 32 day trip. Wow. And we went, the guide drove us from basically Saigon to Hanoi, and we stayed in all the national parks along the way. It was just a fabulous trip. He knew all the history of the country. He knew all the indigenous tribes. And yeah, it was just a fabulous trip. We Sounds knew. like uh, you really hit the jackpot there with that fellow. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Love birding. Can't get enough of it. And now I'm working my way through my 10,000 photos from Antarctica. I hear you. I've, I've got way too many photos too. Uh, and uh, it is fun to look back at them. Some good memories for sure. Yeah, it is for sure. Good. Well, David, thanks so much for doing this with me today. I really appreciate sure. it. And uh, you have a great rest of the winter and uh, figure out that next trip and enjoy it. Yeah, will do. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for listening. I really enjoyed talking with David and hope you enjoyed hearing his story. It's really fun to hear from birders who are not, you know, obsessed birders who just bird and don't do a whole lot else. Although I expect almost all of my guests have a life outside birding. We just don't talk about it sometimes. Well, David's life outside birding was interesting enough to talk about. I really appreciated that aspect of talking with David today and when I met him and his wife on the boat. Anyway, thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding and good day. <laughs>